Welcome to the podcast for April 13th, 2017. It's Maundy Thursday. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the challenges of having to preach during Holy Week is dealing with the familiar. Every year, the events of Holy Week are always the same, right? It begins with Palm Sunday, which we had a few days ago, and Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, kicking off his last week of life on earth. And then it moves to Monday, Thursday, recalling the Last Supper of Jesus and his disciples. And then, as Pastor Angela reminded us, tomorrow, Good Friday, and the crucifixion of Jesus, followed by, of course, Easter Sunday and the empty tomb. And these are all familiar passages. It's not like they change the Bible stories around every year. We get the same stories all the time. And so for those of us that have come uh, to these types of service, services year after year, uh, the question is, how can we hear a fresh word amidst all of the familiarity of these events? Well, I decided to do a little studying this week, and I researched the Old Testament sacrificial system. I can already see the excitement just bursting from your eyes. You are so glad you came tonight, aren't you? Well, um, throughout these six weeks of Lent, we've been looking at how, over the course of his ministry, Jesus managed to get people mad at him. Uh, Not that he did it on purpose. They just took offense at things that he said, things that he did, even things that he didn't do. So much so that the religious leaders of his day wanted him dead. And now, during Holy Week, all of that is coming together at the same time. One of the Lenten disciplines that we've been inviting you to participate in this Lenten season is scripture journaling. It's a practice of reading the Bible, not for information, but reading devotionally, of finding just one thing of interest every time you read a passage, no matter how short or long you may read, and then walking through a simple process to hear what it is that God might be saying to you, how that passage, that one insight might apply to your own life. And you may have heard me say it before, but... Scripture journaling, I I discovered it about 15 years ago, and it completely changed my spiritual life. It it has become the single most important aspect of deepening my faith uh, than, than anything I've ever done over the course of my life. So if you've been following the Scripture journal passages that we've been having, you'll know that we just started looking through the book of Leviticus this week. Oh, joy, right? There's not a whole lot of action in the book of Leviticus. There's no epic battles or wars, no accounts of divine intervention or miraculous healings. There's no classic love stories, no juicy betrayals. Uh, In fact, Leviticus is primarily a book that's concerned with worship rituals and community procedures. It's not the kind of subject matter that you find on uh, New York Times bestseller list books. Uh, Mel Gibson, I don't think he's looking to make a passion of Leviticus film anytime soon, right? To be honest, it's pretty boring stuff. However, considering the fact that many Christians today say that Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection on Easter Sunday abolished the sacrificial system once and for all, I thought, well, let's look at what that system actually was if Jesus abolished it, especially during Holy Week. And Dathan's with me, so I know we're good. All right. So indulge me for a few minutes as we look back at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. According to the Columbia Encyclopedia, the word sacrifice means a type of religious offering 
or gift to a superior or supreme being in which the offering is consecrated through its destruction. The book of Leviticus outlines uh, the requirements and the procedures necessary for the people of Israel when it came to the various sacrifices that they would make to God. Now, there was a whole variety of sacrifices, which we'll look at momentarily. And no matter what the sacrifice was, there were always the same six steps to any sacrifice. First, you would bring the animal or the item into the sanctuary. The type of animal depended on the sacrifice that was required. Then you had laying on of hands on the animal. Uh, And this is really quite a literal description that before an animal was sacrificed, the one for whom the sacrifice intended, the person that brought the animal in, had to physically place his or her hands on the animal's head or horns. Then the animal was slaughtered. And I think for any of us that didn't grow up on a farm, uh, we probably would have had a hard time with this portion to see an animal killed right before our eyes, but it had to be done if a sacrifice was to be made. Then there was the tossing of the blood, and according to scripture, the priest would splatter the blood in strategic locations. It just depended on what type of sacrifice was being offered. Then the burning of the animal, either in its entirety or uh, specific portions of the animal. And then finally, the disposing of the remains, a necessary but undesirable task, I'm sure. So those are the six things that happened any time a sacrifice was made. Now, Leviticus also mentions that there's five different kinds of sacrifices that would be offered throughout the year among the Israelites. The burnt offering was the first one mentioned in Leviticus. This is the, the chief daily offering that was made throughout Israel. It was, it was used to get God's attention for a variety of matters. A whole animal was burned on the altar, thus the title, burnt offering. Uh, and a worshiper would sacrifice an unblemished male bull, sheep, or goat. Or if they were poor and they couldn't afford a, uh, a bull, sheep, or a goat, they could substitute two turtle doves or two pigeons. Next was the grain offering. This was associated to the harvesting of your crops. A worshiper would bring in flour that was made from the grains of their crops, and the flour would get mixed with oil and frankincense, and then either baked in an oven, cooked in a pan, or cooked on a griddle. I think this is the first mention of pancakes in the Bible. Yeah. And then the priest would then keep a significant portion of the grain, and the rest would be burned to the Lord. Then there was the peace offering. This was also known as a sacrifice of well-being. This was made with either a male or female animal, sheep, cow, or goat. It had to be unblemished. It had to be perfect in appearance. And these were sacrifices of praise, kind of like how Thanksgiving meals linked the worshiper and to God. When something blessed happened in your life, you would bring a sacrifice of praise, Then there was the sin offering. This was also known as the purification offering. This was a sacrifice for repentance of sin. And it recognized that one's relationship with the Lord had been broken. But it didn't just affect you, that person that sinned. It infected the whole community. The whole community's relationship with God was endangered. And this included the inadvertent sins of the people. Or or sins that you didn't intend to do, but it just kind of happened. Well, there was a gradation of how serious these inadvertent sins were. And believe it or not, the the sins of a priest or of the entire community as a whole were more serious than any individual sins that single people may have made. 
The type of animals that's needed depended on who had inadvertently sinned. Uh, if it was the people, uh, a bull would be used for the, the group of the people. It was a male goat if it was for priests or the rulers. And then if it's just the common people, uh, any female sheep or goat could be used. And of course, there's always the poor option of bringing two turtle doves or two pigeons if one couldn't afford to buy a sheep uh, or a goat. And then there was even a below-the-poverty-line option of bringing flour if you couldn't even afford the birds. One of the interesting differences between the types of sin offerings was the location on where the blood was sprinkled after the animals were slaughtered. This is the cool stuff that little guys kind of get into, right? Splattering blood around the house, how, how amazing is that? Well, when an individual sinned, the blood was splattered outside the sanctuary. If the pastor or the priest or the community as a whole sinned, then blood was sprinkled inside the sanctuary, directly on the veil that separated the worship space from the Holy of Holies. And when atonement was made on the high holy day once a year on Yom Kippur for all, the un, for all the intentional sins that were made throughout the year, then blood was sprinkled inside the holy of holies. And it was on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne room. Think Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That, they went right into the middle and splattered the blood there once a year for all the sins that people knew they were committing when they committed them. Finally, the last type of offering is the guilt offering. It's probably the least understood by biblical scholars, so I'm not really going to talk much about it, except to say it's somewhat similar to the sin offerings. Okay, so all of you who are still awake and haven't fallen asleep by this oh-so-exciting topic, here's where I actually got interested this week. When Jesus was crucified, Matthew and Mark mentioned that an earthquake rumbled through Jerusalem the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath. Not only that, but something really interesting happened with the earthquake. It said that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Mark 15 says, Then Jesus gave a loud cry. This is when he's on the cross. He breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I'd always heard the, the interpretation of this was symbolic. Right, That the curtain itself was the veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And, and only the priest, the high priest, once a year could go in on Yom Kippur when he was making a sin offering for all the intentional sins of the people from the prior year. No one else could go by uh, through that curtain. No other priest could go back there. Even the high priest couldn't go back there any other day than the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So the standard explanation of the curtain being torn at the exact moment of the crucifixion was now that passageway to God was open. There was no barrier. People, anyone could get to God. You didn't have to stop. So through Jesus, everyone could come directly to God. Nothing got in the way. That's, that's the traditional understanding that I've always heard. But remember what we're talking about where the blood would be splattered and it depended on what kind of uh, sin or what kind of offering was being made. Well, do you remember where in the temple the blood was to be put if it's the people as a whole sinned unintentionally? Close. It was close. Not on the table. It was on the curtain. So if everyone, for the people that had sinned unintentionally, they would sprinkle it on the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the sanctuary. And so I wonder, could it be that Jesus' death on the cross was the blood that was then splattered on the temple. 
on the curtain specifically. Not just on the curtain, not just sprinkled on the curtain, but it destroyed the curtain. It ripped the curtain. It demolished and and dissolved the curtain once and for all. You know, the word for sacrifice in Latin is sacrificare. It literally means to make holy. So this past Tuesday, I was going through the scripture journaling, and we had Leviticus 6, and it was a chapter dealing with sin offerings, and it's laying out all of the ritual requirements and stipulations for a sin offering. Here's what it says in verses 24 through 27. This is the ritual of the sin offering. The sin offering shall be slaughtered before the Lord at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it as a sin offering shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of the meeting. And whatever touches its flesh shall become holy. It's that last sentence that caught my attention. Whatever touches its flesh shall become holy. Once again, tonight we will share in what we have come to call the sacrament of Holy Communion. There's a There's something very similar between the words sacrament and sacrifice, isn't there? And what is it that we believe as Christians about what happened during Holy Communion? We're sharing in the body and blood of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, symbolically, the bread of life and the cup of salvation. And yet I wonder if maybe there just might be something more at work here. Especially if we go back to Leviticus 6, and if the words are true, then whoever touches the flesh of Jesus shall be made holy. Brothers and sisters, as we partake in this event together tonight, we are not just reenacting some meal that took place over 2,000 years ago. We're not just remembering the sacrifice of one man who made it for all of humankind. When we share in the fruit Uh, of the vine and the bread of life together, we are being made holy once again. No matter what we've done or failed to do, no matter who we've been prior to tonight, no matter how we've let ourselves down or others by the choices we've made, tonight, as we share in this meal, we are being made holy. What an amazing gift, especially as we prepare for the celebration of Easter. Thanks be to God. Amen.